0: Tell me your name and what you're afraid of. My name is Brian McNiff, and I'm afraid of sulafids. Oh, what is that? It's like a spider, but they have six legs and two eyes, and they're ten times as scary. My name is Ryan Murray, and I'm afraid of my teeth falling out.
1: My name is Haley Caruso, and I'm fr- afraid of expired food.
0: Why does that scare you? Are you afraid of eating it or just, like, looking at it? Um, I'm mostly afraid of eating it because I really hate being sick.
2: My name is Michael Morantonio, and I am afraid of parasites.
0: My name is Elaine Park. I'm afraid of holes, like little holes. I'm also afraid of the dark (laughs) and diseases. Hi, my name is Matthew Williams, and I am afraid of buttons. Why are you afraid of buttons? I really have no idea. It's something that I had a phobia of since I was just a really young kid. That's, like, that's a pretty strange and unusual fear. Has anyone ever told you that before? Yeah, I mean, everyone that I tell this to points out that it's a little odd. My name is Stephanie Chan, and I'm scared of spiders. Why don't you like spiders? What makes them scary? Just the word spiders. It sounds like they're crawling all over my skin. And I'm Chris Williams, and my biggest fear is pigeons. I'm not afraid of the dark weeping. Before fall on hard times, honey we on Today on Fordham Conversations, we're talking about fear. What makes us afraid and how it makes us afraid. We'll talk to Fordham psychology professor Dean McKay about fear, disgust, and a virtual reality experiment designed to help people with their phobias. And the beasts come out and cast their But first, we'll take a trip downtown to visit one of the city's scariest haunted houses. Blood Manor on Barrack Street in Soho is New York City's premier haunted attraction. Visitors line up around the block to walk through the converted storage warehouse to be spooked and horrified by monsters, props, and visual effects. Jim Farrow is one of the co-creators of the attraction, and he tells us about his love of horror building blood matter, and how to find a demon on Craigslist. So can you tell me a little bit about the how it first came about? Like, what? how did you first conceive of it?
1: Well, um, going back, oh gosh, I hate to say, the, you know, almost 30 years, I was a home haunter. So uh, I was like the Halloween guy in the neighborhood, you know, the Christmas guy? I'm the Halloween guy. And Mike, which I didn't know him then, he was doing it about a mile and a half away in a different neighborhood. So I would take the furniture out of the house in August, decorate the house, decorate the outside. And uh, it's about 12, 10, 12 years ago, Jim Lorenzo, my one of my guys, partners, he um, stopped by the front of my house one night, passed him by in a car and said, gee, this is really cool that you do this, yeah. Then I brought him inside the house, he freaked out. He said, well, I do event planning and I um, would love to rent some of your stuff. You think you might be willing? Okay, about a year later, my wife was working where she works at a hospital and someone said gee my daughter lives next door to a guy in Queens Village it's crazy like your husband about Halloween you should go check his house out turned out to be Mike so Jimmy was um he does event plans as I said he was doing um events for a club up on 27th street and it was an empty floor he says gee you know let's do something in Manhattan and here we are you know and that's how it started just by kismet I guess is that the right word? And then we met, and we both had a passion for this, and
0: here we are. Can you tell me a little bit about what makes Blood Manor different from other haunted houses around?
1: Well, I I think, as I said before, when you're a home haunter, and it's hard to really explain it, but what we did was over the top. So you need to picture the craziest Christmas house you ever saw. We're like, oh, my goodness, this is unbelievable. We're not patting ourselves on the back, but Mike and I were doing that with Halloween. Things are moving on the lawn, smoke's going, thunder and lightning, your whole house has no furniture, it's all decorated, even the bathroom. You know, parties for 200 people. So you only do that with a passion. Obviously money goes out, money doesn't come in when you're a home haunter. So I think it stems from the passion. Um, We paid enormous attention to detail in the house, you have no idea, I'm not making this up, we would put something on the dining room table and we'd step back and my wife would say, I think it really needs to be about two inches over. Our goal here, I always liked when I was a kid watching movies, uh, I always thought it was really cool even though I know it was make believe. Actors going through like a castle or a haunted mansion. It must be just cool for the atmosphere, right? In real life it would be great. So I want to create that for you. I want you to enter Blood Manor and within 15 seconds say two things to yourself. This is going to be good. This is legit. And totally forget that you're on the second floor of a building on Varick Street for the next 20 or so minutes that it takes you.
0: So where did your passion to become a Home Haunter come from? Were you a big horror movie fan and, and to that kind of thing? I,
1: I was as a kid. In fact, I tell the story of my earliest recollection. I hate to tell you what year it was, but I was six years old. Or, well, I was under eight because I moved when I was eight and it was in the apartment. So I was under eight and I'm watching the original Frankenstein movie alone on a Saturday in a big, big back chair in my parents' living room. And a commercial came on. I swear this is true. I was so scared, I I was so little I could stand in the chair. And I stood up and I looked over the back of the chair like I'm afraid like the monster was behind me. And I just remember that, you know, and I just always thought horror movies were great. Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, those traditional old-time universal ones. And today, I mean, there's many great horror movies now, sure.
0: So can you tell me a little bit about the space here and how big it is and, and kind of how you shaped it for your needs?
1: Um, sure. The, the space, obviously, as a, as a haunted attraction, we're not an easy tenant to put up with. And buildings are not easy to come by that can do or have what we need. You know, it's it's got to be a match made in heaven, as they say. So the space here is a, a well, the floor is about 7,000 or 9,000 square feet. The attraction takes up about 5,000 square feet. So now, understand... Uh, They're just testing one of the demons. Um, You have to, obviously a layout has to have certain safety and security measures. So you need to set or draw or design the walkthrough where a walkthrough attraction with all of the safety regulations in mind, meaning the width of alleyways and doorways and um, exits and ingress and egress and fire exits and all those kinds of things. So it takes, you know, it takes some time, but once we got the space, having had some uh, experience, of course, from our first place, we sat down and, you know, okay, we want to maximize the use of the space, which I think we did a great job. There's about, I think it's 16 different themed rooms. Then there's a couple of alleyways. There's a whole 3D section. I don't want to give too much away. And, you know, so we maximize it. Of course, you have to have what they call back of the house space. You know, you need to get dressed. You need to go to the bathroom. You need to have an office. You need to have a ticket booth where we're standing now, you know, that kind of thing. But we try to make it all kind of part of the fun.
0: I want to ask now about the actors. How many actors do you have here, and how do you find them?
1: Well, uh, we have probably between 40 and 45 every given night. Um, you know, it's a seasonal thing. We, we put ads on Craigslist. Usually, from year to year, we probably maintain somewhere around 60%, maybe a little bit more. Of the, of the the, the uh, staff, you know, the character, the actors, from year to year. So there's a few people that have been with us for almost, uh, in fact, two, two people for all nine years. But not many, you know, obviously people go on uh, and they move on. But uh, that's basically how we do it. And even the actors, we look for people who are willing, obviously love Halloween, but more than that are willing to be extremely extroverted, I guess. You know, there's no over the top at blood matter. You can never be over the top. That's what people are paying for. You know, if you, you know so if you're a beautiful girl, you can't be beautiful at blood matter. No such thing, you know, that kind of thing. So you gotta be outside yourself. and we look for people who are willing and like to do that and can do it.
0: Have you ever had a, an issue where someone walking through has maybe even gotten too scared or had some sort of panic attack? Does that happen?
1: We have many people uh, use the chicken exits, absolutely. Um, I don't know if you want to characterize it as a panic attack, but many people wind up cowering in a corner on the floor crying. Um, and, of course, the ultimate, when you pee your pants, you get a free T-shirt. I pissed my pants at Blood Manor. We gave out, like, I think almost a dozen of them last weekend. So that was good. And they proudly claim it, guys included.
0: So when that happens, do you feel like you've kind of succeeded? Like, wow, I hit the jackpot.
1: Absolutely. You know, I mean, I can't, I mean, there are times, it's not really good for business, but there are times when couples will come in and, you know, one of our actors might be in the hall and whatever, and they're waiting online line where we are now to get into the physical attraction, and they start screaming, and the girl's like, there's no way I can't do this, I can't do it, I'm not going, I'm not going. And I'm like, bro, you don't want to drive away customers, <laughs> we need the income. But yeah, you get people that just, they come up here, see it, because, you know, you're standing in light, It gets very dark. And people leave before they ever go in. Not too many, thank God. But people, absolutely, they use the chicken exits.
0: Do you get scared easily yourself?
1: I am. They always kid me that Pharaoh's the easiest. Jimmy is the easiest guy. Boom! You know, like I'll walk through a guy. I'm, I'm actually very easily scared. I don't know why, but I am.
0: So h- how do you keep topping yourself for the next year? It must—it must, um, must be a lot of pressure to kind of keep building on it and make it bigger and better.
1: I, I agree with you. There is some. I mean, but not that we really feel pressure. But we like to do it for ourselves. We we have to keep things fresh. We change things. There's always new ideas coming up. Sometimes we, you know, a, a movie might give us an idea, a new. You know, when Saw came out, we kind of did some stuff about Saw, which people liked a lot. So that was pretty cool, and things of that nature. But we are, you know, for our 10th anniversary next year, we're looking to really go over the top. We have Mike has some. I think they're very expensive, but ideas about what to do for next year in some of the places. So we'll see what happens, you know.
0: And you have private events here too sometimes?
1: Um, we, we, we sometimes have, um, like, photo shoots and things of that nature. It's not really conducive, like, to a party. There's no big room to sit and drink and eat. You know, we don't do that. Um, but we do many, you know, photo shoots and things of that nature, TV shows, videos. Of We've done several of them over time, sure. In 2011... Um, Uh, We did a wedding up at the, it's called the Hempstead House in Sands Point. It's a big mansion on the water. And the bride was a big horror fan and her whole wedding was themed out that way. But we did the cocktail hour and we decorated maybe five or six rooms. I had about a dozen characters, you know, actors in costume and makeup. I I even, we devised like a whole kind of a a little bit of a plot so that the characters could say to the guests, you know, something about a, a wedding from 100 years ago in the Brian and Groom have returned and they're haunting this, you know, that kind of fun thing. It was really good. It was actually the wedding itself, not just because of us, was featured in, um, I think GQ actually has a, a wedding magazine. I have it home. And uh, there were a lot of pictures of our, our uh, people in our rooms that we decorated. It was really cool, very cool.
0: So do you have time to do that kind of stuff throughout the year or is, is your attention mainly focused on this all year round?
1: Well, most of those kinds of things really come up in October. Um, during the year, we have time, you know, of course. That was done, uh, October 29th was the wedding, and that week for three days, we were there from, you know, morning until we came to come to Blood Matter back the next morning. It's really, it's very difficult physically because there's, you know, we're here till 3 in the morning. You wake up the next morning by 9 o'clock, you're decorating. You know, you're back here at 7 o'clock, so it was, it's a little hard, but you do what you got to do. It's our time to, time to shine, I hope. Well, you know, our attraction is permanent, so it's built. Once it's built, it's built. We, do. but we, um, we start thinking about new things sometime in December, January. Uh, we go to the show in late February, early March. Finalize our ideas from based on some things we might see at the show, and then we're you know redecorating, if you want to use that phrase. sometime starting in April, May, we start casting. sometime late June, July, August, we send out Craigslist notices and. And then we start the marketing and get the marketing in line and et cetera, and we're off and running as we are now.
0: I'm Chris Williams on 90.7 WFUV, and today on Fordham Conversations, we're talking about fear. Now we'll hear from Fordham University professor Dean McKay. His major areas of study include anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, and disgust. He tells us about how fear and disgust affect us and how he began studying these subjects.
2: It goes back a while ago to when I was a graduate student actually and uh, some of my work as an intern was um, at a place that specialized in anxiety disorders and uh, OCD in particular drew me to some aspects of disgust in light of some clients that I saw who had contamination based obsessive compulsive disorder but who remarked consistently that the reasons why they avoided things was not because they were afraid of being contaminated but because they just found it yucky. And, um, you know, as I looked at some of the research on this topic, it turned out that that was something that was very much under-investigated. And, um, and yet it seemed to be something that showed up very frequently in people's offices, and there was no good, re- uh, no good means for treating problems that were based on disgust.
0: So what are some of the things that you found doing this research?
2: Well, one of the things that uh, consistently shows up is that Uh, disgust is not something that's as readily treated as fear. So if we look at the prevailing treatments for fear, especially for phobias, involves what's called exposure treatment, which is where you practice getting closer and closer to the thing that you're most afraid of in, you know, very measured, very careful, and, uh, gradual steps so that as you get more and more accustomed to circumstances that you're historically likely to avoid because of fear, uh, you become less fearful of it when no actual negative event happens. Uh, with disgust, you might try to apply the same principle, and what happens is that it's very difficult to um, get that same kind of uh, reduced disgust reaction through uh, practice in sessions. Uh, it can be done, but it just requires a little bit more vigorous, um, exposure, more frequent exposure. Sometimes it needs to be done at a more gradual rate. Uh, so that's what we've been finding so far. Uh, the one other thing that we find is that uh, there are some aspects of disgust that are a little bit more um, nuanced and higher order. Uh, so one of the major ones that we've been most recently investigating is referred to as moral disgust. And that's when you know you find somebody or some actions to be uh, disgusting, but they're not you know, they're not the kinds of disgust reactions that we get from food or from, you know, other objects that we usually think of as disgusting, but they more have to do with people's actions. You know, if we go back about 20 years, one of the things that was emerging in the research on uh, this topic was really about phobias. And so if we think about phobias when people are afraid of snakes or they're afraid of spiders, um, usually the immediate thing that we assume is that the fear is because you might get bitten. Uh, They will cause some kind of harm to you physically. And it turns out that that's in part true. But there is another major component, and that is that most of these things that we're afraid of, like spiders and snakes and other uh, things of that sort that are a cause for typical phobias, the things that most people think of as phobias, they also happen to be uh, creatures that live in places that we associate as being dirty. So let's say spiders, as an example, Uh, they tend to hang out in places that are dark, dusty, not so clean. And what that ends up leading to is uh, this aspect of disgust being a component of it and what we refer to as the disease avoidance aspect of uh, of phobias. So what that refers to is that our concern with being in touch with spiders and snakes uh, and things like that has to do with the fact that they tend to be in places that we deem unclean And therefore, they pose a different kind of hazard. They pose a danger for causing us to get sick. And disgust itself as an emotion is one designed expressly for avoiding illness, uh, such as ingesting a contaminant or getting in contact with something that could harm us physically uh, through illness. And so that's really the most basic level uh, connection. Now, expanding that outward, you know, the natural next place to look is actually contamination fear, where people exhibit things like hand washing and excessive hand washing, and a lot of times when people do that, sure, they're worried about you know getting sick, but part of it is that they will often report that the things that they are washing their hands of are things that they deem to be disgusting, and part of the reason is because they believe that it will cause them to get ill.
0: So it's interesting you're saying that, you know, fear doesn't necessarily have to be something that poses an immediate threat to us or or puts us in danger. It could be a little bit more uh subtle or indirect.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah, there are plenty of things that people avoid out of um, you know, a sense of fear or a stated reason having to be based on fear but where the concern is that the outcome of being exposed to that may have longer-term consequences. And so this is where it becomes more difficult to tease apart so that, let's say, people who come to uh, get treatment for phobias, they will frequently report that they are afraid, and that's an accurate description. Their physical reactions are consistent with what we think of for fear. But On closer inspection and after doing things that involve exposure to the things that are um, fear-based stimuli, then you start to find that some of these other aspects start to emerge, and and in particular, the one that's consistently pretty pronounced is discussed.
0: So how how can fear affect someone in the long term?
2: I mean, it's pretty complex. I mean, there are a few different major ways that it can affect people. If there is long-term and persistent fear, and I guess if we think of basic phobias uh... what ends up happening is that people will avoid all the circumstances and situations where they might encounter that phobia so even uh... something like spider phobia which is not a very typical problematic phobia in this geographic region but let's suppose that someone really had uh... very bad spider phobia you know there would be places that they could they would really not be able to go basements would probably be out of the question crawl spaces in homes uh... there might be times of the year that are problematic so i think of let's say this time of year is actually probably a pretty bad one for spider phobics uh... because spiders are a little bit more active if you live in suburban areas Um, i know for myself most mornings when i walk out of the house uh... there are spider webs around on my porch and so if you're spider phobic and you see spider webs well most likely you're going to start thinking about where's the spider and it's going to make it harder for you to go around to places where you might encounter them and so in severe cases it might even affect the ability to travel in the evening because you would uh, unwittingly encounter a web maybe encounter a spider so that's just one very small example of how fear in the long term or phobias in the long term might affect someone Um, there are other notable effects that are adverse with phobias so with enough avoidance uh, but with the constant concern that you might encounter, the thing that you're fearful of, uh, the risk becomes very great that you'll have physical symptoms that are going to be problematic. People with anxiety disorders in general uh, tend to have a higher risk for gastrointestinal problems, uh, cardiac problems, because these things are you know, fairly high-level stressors that are without real good predictable relief. And that's and that's probably the biggest difficulty that happens when people uh, seek treatment for fear is that it's so unpredictable, even though there is this great effort to get it under control and to predict all the circumstances and places where the uh, feared items are going to be encountered, that it nevertheless becomes uh, almost impossible to contain. And then it leads to all these other kind of physical manifestations.
0: So I'm, I'm just wondering now, is there a certain pleasure in fear? Do, do we actively seek fear sometimes to, to kind of be excited by it, or is there something within it that we actually like?
2: Well, you know, it's in, this is a time of year that usually people start thinking about fearful things and approaching fear kind of um, stimuli, right? So more and more horror movies at this time of year. Halloween is sort of a celebration of fear, even though... I know the impetus for Halloween comes from a different rationale. Um, and there is something to be said for that, that um, you know, there are a lot of different theories that are out there to account for this. And one uh, postulate that I've heard is that sometimes people will basically rehearse the experience of having fear. And so if you go exposed to horror movies and you get that kind of physical rise from a uh, horror movie that is basically an opportunity to practice a survival skill, uh, without it being in fact dangerous, and, and it can be quite enjoyable. There is something that can be pleasurable about that because there is that uh, survival aspect that's getting strengthened. Uh, so there is this supposition about that. I believe it's a it's not a terribly well tested one, but it's a theory that is out there, and, and it's probably about as good an explanation as any for what attracts people to horror movies. As someone who likes horror movies myself, I. Uh, could appreciate that stance, um, but in any case, so there is that that idea that's out there.
0: So I, I found an article from about ten years ago describing how you were using virtual reality equipment to help people face their phobias.
2: Oh right, yeah, I was doing that for a little while. Um, there was, um, I stopped doing it because I, I was not getting as many people interested in it, and um, and the software. Uh, license was frankly pretty expensive, but it was an effective way of, uh, you know, engaging in treatment for different kinds of phobias. So a, a client would uh, wear a special set of video-based goggles that would, you know, wrap tightly around their eyes so that the environment outside, so to speak, would not really penetrate. <clears throat> and it would immerse them in a, um, in a computer-generated environment. And so one of the ones that was the most popular and maybe the most well-tested was the one that dealt with fear of flying. So a lot of people seek treatment for fear of flying. It's, you know, in our modern uh, way of traveling, fear of flying can be a real impediment. And so people come to treatment for uh, fear of flying. Now, if you were not using virtual reality-based treatment and you wanted to do exposure therapy, it's actually quite costly because ultimately, the person needs to take a flight. And one of the things that often has to happen to do a flight is that you might want to do that with your therapist. The only difficulty is that in exposure therapy, when it comes time to do the flight, there's no real middle ground. It's not like you can call the airline and say, hey, listen, could you just kind of park a plane out on the tarmac and I want to climb up on the stairs into the plane with my client and maybe sit down in the seats in the cabin, but we don't want to take off you know a lot of airlines are kind of reluctant to do that obviously and uh... and it would be frankly very expensive and even if you were able to just say to somebody and you got them ready and you said okay it's time to do the flight it's an all-or-nothing experience there's no warm-up to uh... doing that you have to basically make the decision buy the ticket get on the plane and fly so that poses a real challenge when we do exposure therapy because Exposure therapy is based on the assumption that you can do things gradually, but if you go too far and you do something that might be too demanding for the client, then rather than producing a therapeutic benefit, it actually sensitizes one more to the fear because it's such an intense experience, they don't benefit from it. It ends up just being a continued fear-producing experience. So that's where virtual reality came in. The premise with virtual reality treatment was that, look, if we can replicate in some small way, all of the conditions that look like flying in the office without actually going to the airport, it's, one, cheaper. Uh, two, we exert as therapists much more control over the environment. Uh, and three, you can get a lot more practice in. So let's say, whereas if you were doing fear of flying treatment and you were bringing someone to the airport, you really get one shot at that for the day. Let's say if I took someone and we were saying, okay, we're going to fly to Buffalo. Uh, so we fly to Buffalo and then we fly back. That's the day. Uh, we get one takeoff, one landing on each side of that, uh, that, side of that trip. Whereas <clears throat> if you do it in the office, it's actually literally possible to take off and land multiple times in a 45-minute session. And that's beautiful. That's a wonderful way to handle it. And what's also nice is if, by chance, the person who's uh, undergoing this kind of treatment finds it to be too overwhelming, and you're in the middle of takeoff or you're in the middle of practicing the virtual flight, it's as easy as hitting the escape key to stop. And so all of those things make it very appealing. And it turns out the data on it is very supportive. Uh, Many people who have gone through uh, virtual reality treatment for fear of flying did so and and experienced great success. Uh, The extensions beyond that with uh, other virtual reality applications have involved uh, social fear, So, um, the environment would be where the person would stand at a podium and give a speech to a mock virtual audience. Uh, it turns out that that's something that was very beneficial for many people. Um, there have been some virtual combat kind of, um, environments developed that allow for helping people with combat-related trauma, uh, improve as part of, uh, treatment. And, um... There have also been some applications related to uh, some other phobias, fear of lightning, fear fear of thunder and lightning, which is very difficult to uh, practice in an in vivo way uh, so the, those are some of the environments that had been developed uh, using this virtual reality platform.
0: One last question I want to ask you if you personally have any fears, phobias, or anything in particular that disgusts you?
2: Oh, uh, okay, well. Yeah, there was a time that i was quite afraid of going to the dentist i had i had kind of a bad experience with a dentist and uh and that made it very difficult for me for a while to go back and get things like uh dental work done but happily i was able to overcome that um as far as things that disgust me the the one thing that really disgusts me it's actually a food related uh issue i am i i find mushrooms completely disgusting uh i i don't care for the taste of them and and like so many people who have any kind of food aversion uh, mushrooms are one that, ones that I find completely unacceptable.
0: Thanks to Dr. McKay and Jim Farrow for talking to me about disgust, haunted houses, and the pleasure in horror. I'm not afraid of the dark, so if the stars get scarce and you reach for him, and honey, he's not there, just a long shadow across your heart. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or catch up with past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay tuned, George Bodarki and Cityscape are next on WFUB. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.